Now, with that said, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. This week, or actually a little over a week ago, I finished my first read-through of Charles Dickens' famous masterpiece, A Tale of Two Cities. Now, to be honest, I wasn't really sold on it at first, and I just kind of was, I felt like it was slow and it was dragging. I didn't really care so much about the story. And then it got halfway through and the beheadings all started. And I was like, wow, I'm totally into this. And then I got to the ending of the book and I was blown away. It was excellent. It was phenomenal. It may be the best ending to a book that I've ever read. And I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. And don't do that thing where you just go and you read the last page or two of the book. I'm not a psychologist, but I think that's certifiable behavior. I'm pretty sure that's sociopathy of some kind. Don't do that. If you're going to read it, read the whole thing. What is my point? My point is A Tale of Two Cities reminded me that endings matter. The best authors are going to carefully craft their conclusions of their story by spending the maximum amount of time possible getting the story just right. Today we have arrived at the conclusion of Luke's masterwork through church history that we have come to call the book of Acts. Now though this book, uh, that the Lord has, or through this book, the Lord has been teaching us a lot of things. He's been showing us what it looks like to take the gospel outside of this building and beyond our four walls. And it showed us what it looks like for the people of God to live and to give and to preach in the reality that Jesus truly is alive and that he's worthy of our fealty. And most of all, this book has shown us over and over and over again the glory of Jesus Christ as he builds his church one soul at a time. Now, I don't know about you, but I have delighted in immersing myself in understanding more about the unfolding of God's plan to spread his kingdom across the planet. And like a play with many scenes, today we are going to consider the final three acts of the book of Acts. So along with each of these scenes, what we're going to do is find one observation about Christ and one application for our own lives. But before we do that, let me just ask that you join me once again and pray for God's blessing on the hearing and the preaching of his word. Our God, we come before you right now acknowledging the fact that this is your book. These are your words. This is breathed out by you for our edification. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would be a receptive people, a humble people, a people ready to hear and ready to apply. And God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do the good work of growing the seeds that are planted today, both the seeds of evangelism and the seeds of maturity, that you would bring them to fruition, that they might truly bear immense fruit in our lives. And Lord God, I pray that in doing so, we would be a church that is strengthened because of what we hear today. May your word go forth and may it return. We know, Lord, that it never does so void. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The first of the three scenes that we're going to consider today is the final leg of Paul's travels to the city of Rome. If you want a nice heading here for taking notes, you could just call this the Romans Road. Take a look with me at chapter 28, starting in verse 11. It says, oh, I'm sorry, as we make our way through, I just want to let you know, I'm going to make some running commentary. So just as we've been doing the last few weeks, it will be a little herky-jerky as I pause and I talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, But I want you to know that this This that we are about to read is God's word. It is completely true, it is perfect, it is accurate, and it is eternally unchanging. This is God's word providentially planned for your hearing today. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. 
a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, if you're tracking with me, when we left off, Paul and his shipmates were in Malta where they had been shipwrecked. The Lord not only provided Paul with an opportunity to get a thankful audience with the governor of the island, he also allowed Paul and his companions to stay there for three months, which likely would have resulted in him preaching the gospel for those three months to the native people. Now, when it was finally time to set sail, notice that whoever was making the decision for the prisoner transfer opted to catch a ride on a ship that had, quote, the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, the Holy Spirit does not waste words, and it's no accident that this information is included when we never learn about the masthead of any other ship in the Bible. The reason that this ship was chosen was because it had the twin gods on its masthead, because it had these twin gods, Castor and Pollux. In the ancient Greek mythology book called the De Astronomica by Hyginius, it says that these twin gods, Castor and Pollux, were given special power and they were given the ability to hear and to bring help to those people who were lost at sea or who had been shipwrecked. That is why they selected this ship. Being superstitious pagans, the Romans who were transferring Paul seemed to be attempting to ensure that they're not going to have to swim again on this trip. Now, putting out to Syracuse, verse 12, we stayed there for three days. For those not familiar with Italian geography, Syracuse or Syracusa is in Sicily. Verse 13, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. That is basically the very tip of southern Italy today. It's the toe that kicks the ball of Sicily. That is now called Reggio Calabria. And it says, continuing on, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Puteoli is basically right next to Naples. It's right next to Pompeii, if you're more familiar. And it says, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Finally, Paul has made it. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Now, it seems likely that the Roman soldiers that were escorting Paul were more comfortable at this point walking than sailing. And if you had been in a shipwreck, I think that would be true for you as well. Instead of continuing on the boat the last 140 miles, they opted to walk on one of the famous Roman roads known as the Via Appia or the, a the Appian Way. Now, try to get a picture of what's going on here. Try to get into Paul's shoes a little bit here. Paul has been in the custody of the Roman government now for roughly two and a half years. And he has boldly stood before three governors and to proclaim the gospel and to express his innocence. And he is now making his way to Rome, the capital of the empire, the biggest city in the world at this time. And nothing else in his area even came close. Perhaps this is difficult for you to identify with, but let me share you a little bit about my first experience coming to New York as a 13-year-old boy. I grew up in Kansas where everything is flat, including the skylines, and I had been, I'd been in some what I consider to be big cities before. Kansas City, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Kansas. To me, those were big cities, but they don't compare to coming to New York. And as my family and I were driving here when I was 13 years old, to, we were crossing New Jersey and we began to see all of these massive spires sticking up into the sky, I was overwhelmed by the number of cars on the road and the density of everything. Just for comparison, just for comparison, Brooklyn by itself has roughly the same population as my entire state. 
Perhaps you've never felt it, but there is some intimidation factor that comes along with that. Paul was walking now towards the biggest skyline in the world of his day, but he also knows that Rome is the central hub of aggression against Christianity in his world. He knows that this is the hotbed of his greatest enemies. And more than that, Paul knows that he's about to stand trial and make his case before the man that everyone in the Roman Empire knows is a complete lunatic. This was the man when he was ashamed of his lack of ability to grow a beard. He shaved it off and created a festival called the Juvenalia where he required all of the nobles from the youngest to the oldest to participate and celebrate him. Because I shaved for the first time, guys. It's a pretty big deal. Not only that, this is the guy who would dress up in wild animal skins and he would, in front of an audience, violate young children for pleasure. Not long ago, I told you about his violent outburst where he killed his pregnant wife by kicking her in the stomach until she was dead. But I did not tell you that not long after that, he found a young boy that he looked very similar to her, had his hair cut, and then he castrated him and brought him into the palace, referring to him as his queen. This is the guy who burned down half of the city of Rome so he could build his own racetrack. And then he blamed the fire on the Christians. That's the guy that Paul is going to have to stand before. This guy is a monster. Now, if you've ever gone cliff diving or ever jumped off a tall diving board even, you've probably experienced that feeling where you have time to think before you hit the water and you begin to ask yourself, why did I do this to myself? What was I thinking? Well, as bold as Paul has been, as he is walking up to that city, you need to know he's a human being just like us. And there were likely moments of doubt and moments of fear and moments of concern. He may have had a little bit of trembling in his fingers. And that becomes notably clear in our text. Look back at the text and look at verse 15 again. It says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Or if we translate it from the Greek with exact uh, literal translation, it states that he, quote, received courage from them. Now, by stating that he received courage or he was given courage or that he took courage, it indicates that there was at least some level of courage that was lacking in him at that moment. Now, here we come to our first application of the day, encouragement. Consider how incredible it is that all it took for Paul to receive courage was the arrival of some believers from Rome. By the way, believers he probably had never met from Rome. Now, according to, the, to verse 15, the courage arrived in his heart before they even spoke to Paul. It arrived in his heart before they even reached him. It just says that when he saw them, he took courage. Now, there are a million ways that you can encourage one another. For example, Right now, we should be encouraging by sending e meals to Kathy Sutton after her surgery, which, thank the Lord, it was successful. We should be uh, encouraging the imperts with the arrival of baby Jonah by sending them meals as well. And just as a heads up, Charmaine, uh, the last couple of days, had to go back into the hospital with some things going on. But good news, doctors say she's responding very well to treatment, and she may even be released this morning. Maybe even by now she's out. That's good news, but we need to continue to encourage them by sending to them. We should be working as a church to encourage them while they are not here. And we should be encouraging our missionaries who are far away from us, overseas. We should pray for them and contact them and ask them about their needs and write letters to them. 
But you should know that there is a special kind of encouragement that comes when you are with someone in person. There are many people who said to me during the COVID shutdown something like this. And I'm really loving the sermons that you're preaching. I really like watching it online. But it just kind of feels like something's missing. It's like, yeah, something's missing. All the people are missing. There's, there's definitely something missing. There's an encouragement factor when we are all together. Now, let me ask, have you ever thought about church attendance like this? I don't really feel like, I don't really feel like going today. You know, there's a lot of other things that I need to do. It's kind of pressing. I'm sure I won't miss that much. I can still watch the sermon on YouTube or listen to the podcast during the week. Uh, that, you need to know, is a very incredibly selfish perspective to have. Going to church is not just about you. It certainly is for you, and it certainly would bless you, but it is also bringing encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Being with the people of God matters. And let me give a little, uh, another angle to that. It's not just being there, but it's also being there when you should be there on time. That means not saying, well, I know that I'll just miss the music, so I'll still go ahead and I'll get there when the sermon starts. No, we are to encourage one another, brothers and sisters. And part of that is when we sing, and the Bible says in doing so, we admonish one another in our singing together. I encourage you to come, spend your life together with the brothers. I want to share with you a little bit about this past week. On Monday, a group of 12 pastors came from North Carolina that is part of a pastor's group there that's uh, connected with about 28 churches in the Charlotte region that are all like-minded with us, and we've had some relationship with them in the past. They would like to begin focusing their efforts for missionary service and for giving and supporting and for sending people here with our network of churches in the New York metro area. And so I've been trying for the last 17 months to work together a, an opportunity for them to come and to meet all of the different pastors in our network and connect with some of our churches. And so this group came up with 12 of their pastors representing nine of those churches so they could get a better idea of how to network with us and how to partner with us. And they stayed here across the street in our parsonage and they stayed some of them in our building over on this side and over the course of Monday through Wednesday I drove them all over the city and helped them visit various uh, various boroughs and various churches and various pastors thank the Lord they were able to connect with 21 different churches that I can remember them communicating with and I was able to have a front row seat to watch a number of beginnings of what I expect to be very incredibly fruitful and beneficial church relationships and needless to say though even though I was mainly just a driver I was wiped out. Monday night, I slept roughly three hours, and then Tuesday night, I slept about two hours, maybe less, and somewhere in those early morning hours of those two evenings is when I found time to write the sermon that I was to preach on, on Wednesday night at North Shore Baptist Church. And then Tuesday after, or Wednesday, after I dropped these guys at the airport, I rushed back here, I put the very finishing touches on the sermon that I was going to preach, and I felt dead. I was drained. I was empty. And then I got back in the car, and I drove in traffic back towards Bayside, and I was thinking, man, this is going to be awful. I am going to be preaching a subpar sermon, and I'm looking at the sky and th seeing that it looks like the apocalypse. It's, it's the end of days. Nobody's going to be there. It's going to be an empty building with me preaching a bad sermon, and I was just at the end of myself. Now, I know that some of you were not able to be there for legitimate health reasons, and with the sky looking and smelling like we were experiencing nuclear holocaust, and I know that some of you had legitimate providential hindrances in not being there. And I don't say any of this to shame anyone, but I say this to illustrate how God worked in my heart that night. 
I walked into that building expecting it to be empty. I walked into that building feeling empty. But as I watched the people arrive that were part of that church, and as I watched the people arrive that are part of this church, I was deeply encouraged. I was seeing people give of themselves to go and to worship the Lord with the saints. And that gave me incredible strength and gave me a passion to get in the pulpit and to preach with every ounce of physical strength that I had left in my body, which wasn't much. Being there matters. Being here matters. Your presence is not just an encouragement to me. I love to see the building full. That's not the reason I'm saying this, though. It's because it's an encouragement to you and to one another. It is an encouragement when you see a brother who you know has come to know Christ just like you have come to know Christ. God has given you a bond of fellowship that has been, un, in a way that we cannot understand, linked together in a closer way than anyone else that you will ever come into contact, family or otherwise, in the world because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. The other thing to notice about this is that the saints from Rome traveled to Paul. Notice they didn't even wait for him to make it all the way to the city. Now, they, they may not have waited because they were assuming when he got there, he might not have the opportunity to communicate with them. But for reasons that I don't think I will ever understand, I want you to know that there is a tendency of Christians, when they are discouraged or when they are too depressed, to avoid the church. Maybe this has been you before. You get into a spiritual funk, and what do you do? You isolate you feel like, oh, I'm just going to wait until I kind of get through this season. I'm just going to wait until I feel better. And then I will go back to church. And what happens? It becomes a vicious cycle in which the longer you're gone, the more difficult it becomes for you to return. Because then you begin to feel embarrassed. And now people are going to ask me questions about it. And then I'm going to have to give some kind of an answer. And you begin to wonder, what am I supposed to do now? Don't run like that. It's bad for you. But everyone else, you should know, brothers and sisters, that's going to happen with people in the church. They are going to disappear sometimes for a few weeks, and they are going to be hurting, and they are going to be discouraged, and they are going to be depressed, and they are going to be sad, and they are going to be angry, and they are going to be bitter. And when that happens, we should, like these guys, walk in their direction. Look for those people. Say to yourself, man, I haven't seen so-and-so for the last couple of Sundays, let me text them, let me call them, let me drive over and ring the doorbell. Those are all way easier than walking the six-mile walk down the Appian Way to the three taverns. Do your best, go out of your way to be the kind of Christian that produces courage in other people by letting them know you are with them, you are for them, you love them. Now finally, before moving to the next scene, consider what this concept teaches us about Christ. We, we could look at this as at the angle of Jesus being the best encourager in the world, and certainly that is true. But I actually want to focus on the opposite side of that coin this morning. Consider that Jesus, when he was getting ready to walk on a road much more terrifying than the one that Paul walked down, consider what happened to him. All Nero could do was kill Paul, and then he'd be ushered into heaven. Jesus was not only going to experience the most harsh treatment and brutal torture that the Romans had ever devised, he was also going to bear the wrath of God for all who would ever be saved. That is a terrifying road to walk down. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, his friends, his disciples, are arguing about who is greater. On the night that he was betrayed, John tells us on three occasions that Jesus in his heart was greatly troubled. And then when he was in the garden, Jesus asked his disciples to stay up with him for a little bit, just to pray with him for a little while. And you know what happened? 
They fell asleep multiple times. Then what happens? The disciples, like sheep, are scattered. And the only one that Jesus saw before the cross was Peter, right after Peter betrayed him. During those trials, Jesus stood alone, and nobody was there to encourage him. Even so, he pressed ahead, despising the shame. His face was set like flint, and he was so committed to the Father's will that even though everyone else deserted him, he stood fast. We have a good Savior who, even without encouragement, went on our behalf. We now move into our second scene that we'll be considering today. If you want to have a nice title, you could call this The Traveling Synagogue. Verse 16. It says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, just so you know, this is incredibly unusual. There are prisons that exist to this day where Paul could have stayed, where Paul likely would have been put if they considered him to be a dangerous criminal. But he was not placed there in the Mamertine prison. Instead, it says that after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and they were to come into his house. Now, notice that Paul's pattern of ministry has always followed the pattern of to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentiles. So normally, what does that look like? Well, normally, you know what happens when Paul gets to a new city. He always goes to the same place first. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there he preaches the gospel in that particular city. And he would reason with the people as long as they would permit him. Sometimes that was several weeks or months. Sometimes, like the Bereans, they received him nobly and accepted what he said, and he could stay there as long as he wanted. But oftentimes, he would go into the synagogue, and eventually they would kick him out. And then he would go off to the Gentiles and share the gospel with them. But Paul loved his Jewish brothers, and he would always do everything possible to proclaim the gospel to them and to point them to the Messiah that they claimed to believe in. So Paul invited all of the leaders of the many synagogues in Rome, and he showed them as much hospitality as he could while being chained to a Roman soldier. And now let's see how that conversation goes. It says, And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Notice here that Paul begins by making it clear that he is not against the Jews. I have nothing against you. And technically, he has every right to make a lawsuit against them. He could have stood before the Roman government and said, these guys have been plotting for my murder. They have literally committed themselves not to eating or drinking until they execute me, until they assassinate me. He could have gone and actually made a charge against them, but he does not. And he says to them, I am not going to stand before Nero and make charge against my nation, even though he had every right to do so. He has done nothing wrong, He's never broken Roman or Jewish law, but he is now going to stand on trial. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now, perhaps you've picked up on the consistent thread of hope that Paul has referenced over the past five chapters. It is the consistent center of attention when he speaks to the Jews. As we've heard many times in the past couple of months, the hope that Paul is referencing is the messianic hope of the one who would come to save God's people. And so when he is preaching to the Jewish brothers, he says to them, listen, hear me. That hope that you proclaim to believe in, that hope is realized in Jesus Christ. 
Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now, there's a lot of surprising things in the book of Acts. This might be the most surprising to me because the Jews were so aggressive and they were so adamant about destroying Paul's ministry, even to the extent of taking his life, that it shocks me no one thought to write a letter to Rome Even though they know Paul is going there, they didn't think to send word ahead to say, hey, this guy is our enemy. Perhaps their letter was in one of those bags that got thrown overboard when they were on the shipwreck and they're trying to lighten the boat and it just kind of got drowned. We don't know. Who knows? All we know is that nobody in Rome's synagogues had any red flags about Paul at this point and they were willing to hear him out except for one thing, which we find in verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So they don't really know what this Christianity thing is all about. They just think it's a sect of Judaism. And now they're concerned that you might be part of a separatist group within our religion. That's a concerning thing to us. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, here we arrive at a very important application point, and that is hospitality. Notice that Paul is not entertaining people. He wasn't putting out fine china or polishing every surface within an inch of its life. He wasn't showing off his house, house arrest house, if you will. He was, however, opening the home that he had for the purpose of sharing the gospel. When was the last time that you intentionally had a meal with an unbeliever with the sole purpose of sharing the gospel with them? Whether you asked them to your home or you asked them out to coffee, when was the last time that you used a dinner table to evangelize? Paul got them in the door and these men, mostly hard-hearted individuals listened for about 14 straight hours to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Now, you might not get 14 straight hours, but we should be lovingly using our homes and any other option we have to use hospitality as one of our evangelistic tools. That's one of the best ways we can open good conversation with others. Let's see how Paul's guests responded. Verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, But others disbelieved. This is a common pattern when he shares the gospel. Verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now pause. Before we read the quote, you need to know that earlier today, Wally read for us the most powerful and famous passage that the Jews would have ever known from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, that great prophet that the vision had in the throne room of God himself. In that vision, God had literally invited Isaiah in his mind to comprehend just a flavor of what was going on in the heavenly places. This infinite and majestic God of the cosmos and beyond any of our comprehension invited Isaiah just to get a peek of God's glory. That's an incredible thing. But you know what I find really surprising? The portion of that chapter that is the most quoted in the New Testament is not the part where King Uzziah dies. It's not the part where he sees the throne high and lifted up. It's not the part where the train of the robe fills the temple. It's not the part where the angel comes and puts the burning ember on Isaiah's lips to purify them. It's not even the uh, part where 
the Lord asked, who will go for us? And Isaiah seems to like jump out of his skin to say, here I am, send me. Those are all incredible pieces of the puzzle. But the part that is quoted most often in the New Testament is what Paul is about to quote now. In fact, this is not only quoted by Paul, but it is referenced many times by Jesus himself. Here is the portion of Isaiah that Paul quoted, verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely, ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And Paul concluded, verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. It's when Paul said this that all of the people in the room got up, they got their coats around them, and they got out the door. And Paul concluded, you are not going to listen, but the Gentiles will. Now, what's the point? The point is that Jesus Christ is the only one that can open eyes or change hearts. It is recorded in all four Gospels that Jesus quoted these very words from Isaiah to explain why he preached the parables. Now, do you remember that? He shares the parables of the soils, and the disciples are sitting there listening, and they're supposed to be like teachers. They've already gone out on a mission trip for Jesus, and now they stop and they wait till Jesus is just with them, and they say, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? We don't understand what you're saying. Why do you speak in these riddles? Why do you speak in these parables? And Jesus says to them that I speak in parables so that they will not understand. Now, not long ago, I read a book that I would not recommend in which the author was arguing that the parables were designed specifically to make big theological concepts simple and accessible to people of agrarian societies among whom Jesus often ministered. But that's not what Jesus said. Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And he said to them, quote, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God to the disciples. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And so that may, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In other words, I am speaking like this so that they do not understand. Now we have seen at every turn in the book of Acts that God must be the one to open the heart. He must be the one to transform the mind. He must be the one to give new life. And by saying these things, Paul is not abandoning the Jews in Rome, nor is he claiming that they have no avenue to salvation. He is simply recognizing the fact that they have come under the exact same hardness of heart that Isaiah had foretold. They all they had the evidence necessary to see. They had everything they needed to know and follow Jesus, but they are dull. They cannot see. They cannot understand. They cannot be forgiven unless God does the initial work of regeneration in them. This should embolden our evangelistic efforts, not dampen them. We should sow the seed and trust that God is the one who can and who does bring the increase in his time and in his terms. We've now arrived at the third and final scene that we're going to cover today. It starts in verse 30. It reads, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Endings matter. They are designed to help us get a settled sense of what the entire story was about and what it was building to. 
Writers and scholars have identified six primary categories of ways that stories end. The first is the most common. It's called the resolved ending. Think like a Leave it to Beaver or a children's book where every problem that exists at the beginning is completely solved at the end and everybody is completely happy once again by the time the credits roll. The second kind of ending is called the ambiguous ending. It's the kind that leaves the open endings that we imagine multiple possible directions that the characters could go or meanings that we're supposed to derive from the story. Perhaps my favorite example is from the movie Inception where is that top going to topple over or not? There's so much meaning in whether or not it does, but the credits roll before you see whether or not it falls. The next kind of ending is called the unexpected ending. This is most common with murder mystery type genres. It's the ending with a twist where they're trying to shock you or surprise you. Now, at this point, I think everybody's looking for the shock or surprise, so nobody's shocked or surprised any longer. But that's a very kind of growing form of ending. Next is called the tied ending, which is the kind of ending where everything basically ends by bringing the characters full circle to the exact same problem or predicament that existed at the beginning of the book. It's also sometimes called a cyclical ending, which to my mind makes more sense. The next form of ending is called the expanded ending. This is when the main plot is over. The main character perhaps is even already dead, but the author tells you more about how the world goes on afterwards. Just to give you an example, consider the final of the third, the third Lord of the Rings trilogy movie, The Return of the King. The movie is over like nine different times before it's actually over. It's an extended ending or expanded ending. Acts doesn't end like any of those. None of those. Acts has the final type of ending that scholars call the unresolved ending. Why did Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stop here? Why, why not tell us about the way the church grew in Rome and became one of the most powerful churches in the world? Why not tell us about the trial before Nero? Why not tell us about Paul's eventual beheading? All of those seem like excellent places to end the story. Those all seemed like the natural expectation or the natural ending points where Luke would conclude his book. Well, first of all, Luke didn't write the rest of Paul's life story because when Luke wrote these words, they hadn't happened yet. But I think also that the Holy Spirit had a greater purpose in mind in the way he concludes this book. And in order to explain it, let me take you back to the very first two verses in the book. <clears throat> Acts 1, 1 and 2 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, speaking of the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. In other words, that was just the beginning. That's what Jesus began to do. But there is much more. Jesus is not finished with his work. Everything before the ascension was just the beginning. And in this book, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus welcomed Stephen into heaven. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus has appeared to Paul on multiple occasions to encourage him and stand by him. And Jesus has been building his church on every page, one soul at a time, as churches were established all across the Roman Empire. Jesus was continuing his work. As he promised, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But now when we get to the end of the book, it just ends. How does it end? With Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Does that sound like a small thing? It certainly is not. Jesus is still building his kingdom. And it's like there's an ellipsis there, a dot, dot, dot to conclude. Here's the final word of application about Christ and about us that I would like to share today. 
Jesus is not done working. Acts ends the way that it does because Jesus is still building his church. And just like Jesus used Paul to be a vessel to transform the world of his day, Jesus will use faulty and frail and limited, seemingly weak vessels like you and I to build his church in our day. The work isn't over. Acts is the classic style of the unresolved ending because there is much more to do, even to this day. Although the book of Acts is complete and will never have another word added to it, Jesus is worthy of our every effort to continue the work to fill every chapter of history with his kingdom for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that this great book that you have provided for us, that we have been able to make our way through over the last few years, Lord, I thank you that you have allowed us to immerse ourselves in the stories, the history of what you have done through the apostles in the early church so that we might see the way that we are to carry the light forward to the next generation. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful with the ministry to which you have entrusted us, that we would be faithful, every one of us who know you, that we would be faithful to proclaim the good news and faithful to evangelize and faithful to encourage and faithful to show hospitality. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to cast the seeds and let you bring the increase. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.